Hello, I would like to introduce you to our guest, Roger McNamee, a legendary figure in the world of technology, innovation, investment, private equity, philanthropy, and music, I might add. Roger was an undergraduate at Yale where he earned a degree in history and then he went on to the Tuck School at Dartmouth for a Master of Business Administration degree. Roger is an innovator, a creator, in the emerging field that came to be called private equity, particularly private equity investing in technology. Roger saw the coming importance of technology some 35 years ago, and he co-founded, among other ventures, the Silver Lake Partners and Elevation Partners. In the latter enterprise, one of his partners was the legendary lead singer of the rock group U2, Bono. Roger's made a lot of money and he's given away a lot of money as well. But remember our definition of genius is someone who hits a target that no one else can see. And Roger saw the coming importance of technology in general and also social media and especially that of Facebook. He was an early investor in Facebook and a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. Roger was also one of the first to see and write about the growing danger inherent in the Facebook platform, a real and present threat to liberal democracies around the world and to each of us individually. And he did so in this book here. My copy of it, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, Zucked, which I highly recommend to you. So we've got a lot to talk about today. And it's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Roger McNamee. So I grew up the second youngest in a huge family. So my parents had six children, five of whom survived to adulthood, plus they adopted three. Wow. And so I was the second youngest in this very large group. And I had a delightful childhood, but I also had medical issues starting from when I was a toddler. Uh, initially digestive issues, then I had a traumatic accident when I was 10. And those things had a huge impact on my elementary school years because I was unable to participate in a lot of the things that go, went on there. And my parents, having so many children, had a just completely genius strategy of parenting, which was benign neglect that they allowed <laughs> the older children yeah. to keep an eye on the younger children. Uh -huh. I, I, I'm, I am here to endorse that strategy. If you <laughs> ever have the chance to be raised by your older siblings, take it because it's, it's really worth it. But my father was an entrepreneur in the stock brokerage business. And that was in the period of my childhood. So the 50s, 60s and early 70s. That was an incredibly volatile world. And what was interesting was that my parents aspired to an upper middle class set of values, mm -hmm. but the business only permitted that some of the time. Uh -huh. And so we were, we were always short of money, particularly as my older siblings were getting ready to go to college. Mm -hmm. And that had a profound effect uh, on me, I, for whatever reason, I noticed that and internalized the ups and downs in a way that uh, some of my siblings did not. And uh, all I can tell you, it was, it was a great family to grow up in because being the second youngest, the dinner table at night was always my father and mother quizzing everybody on wow. the events of the day. So, you know, this would be the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War. And, you know, I would have been in elementary school while all of these things were going mm -hmm. on and yet expected to have a point of view mm -hmm. and therefore encouraged to read the newspaper, you know, in third grade, <laughs> yeah. you know, which I can simply tell you was not true of my classmates' families. Right. I, I went to school with some really, really, really smart kids, but my family situation was different. My parents were older. They had way more kids. And uh, it worked great for me. 
That, that's a very interesting uh, observation because the, the desire to read, the desire to, do, to ingest information seems to be so, so important to these transformative figures, particularly reading. They are all almost to a person voracious readers. I had no so idea. When idea. I was a really little kid, my yeah. mother and father, but especially my mother, used to read to us. They would read to us books that were definitely too complicated for us to read for ourselves. So Charles Dickens, you know, in yeah. second and third grade, that kind of stuff. It really got you thinking about issues way ahead of time. And what was interesting is I was not for my own pleasure a reader until I got to graduate school. You know, I obviously had to read a lot for school and I studied literature. So I, I read a lot of both English literature and French literature. I read a lot of history because I was a history major. And, but reading was not a pleasurable thing until I got to grad school and realized that if I didn't start reading then, I would never develop a reading habit. And so I became a voracious reader, particularly of literary fiction in graduate school. And that has stuck with me ever since. So I now read a book almost every week, mm -hmm. uh, mostly mm -hmm. fiction. I had to spend about three years reading the bibliography for my book when I, I wrote Zucked. Uh -huh. um, you know, so I was reading nothing but but books about technology, policy, and privacy, right. and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But but mostly I like reading yeah. literary books. And and you know, I find that extraordinarily important for getting ideas. Mm -hmm. especially for understanding human relationships. That's very interesting because normally if you were after ideas, you would go to nonfiction books. You'd go for no. factual information. No, I, don't, I, I totally you disagree. You say with it's that. the opposite. I totally disagree with that. I think I, I say it's about using your imagination. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and in fact, my experience with uh, most nonfiction books is they have one big idea and they relay that in the first paragraph. Uh -huh. And most of them you can abandon after the first chapter because you really don't have that much to say. And, and in terms of, I've read many nonfiction books that were incredibly thought provoking, but I've, I don't know other than possibly Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance Capitalism that I've ever, that in the last 10 years, I've read a nonfiction book that stimulated my creativity. I think yeah. that's probably the only one. Yeah, that's probably the only, Again, that's that's probably probably the only book on economics that I've read pretty much from beginning to end, and it's a long, fat book. It, and, and, and it deserves the Nobel for economics because it really is transformed. But this is a key point. That's just me. I have no idea. Everyone else's mileage may vary, right? And they, in fact, may find nonfiction a more stimulating thing. I know a ton of people who get great ideas from reading history. Mm-hmm. And I don't read that many history books anymore. I can solely see how that would be true. But for me, the way I get it is from fiction. Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting and somewhat contrarian uh, insight. I wouldn't have expected well, it. I suspect it will not be the last in our time here today. Um, but related to that, what interests me here about your background, again, and it has to do with your ed education and what goes into your head. Um, somewhere I picked up, you know, you're a history major at Yale, then business major. But somewhere in there I had that you were out of school for a couple of years and that you also studied um, engineering while you, some engineering while you were at school, which is probably not unrelated to what you ultimately became um, so tech innovator. So the story behind this is that I, for me, high school was very difficult. And I was in three different high schools in four years. And it was mostly, I just was not, uh, I was not athletic. And most high schools in that area revolved <laughs> around athletics. And so I wound up spending my senior year on a program called School Year Abroad in France. Oh, lovely. And that was an extraordinary experience. But it was there that I had my first serious girlfriend. And when I went to Yale, um, she wanted to move to California. And so I took a year off after my sophomore year in college to go out with her to California. And, you know, I thought I was going to be Woodward and Bernstein, right? I was going to be the next uh -huh. investigative reporter. Keep in mind, this is the mid 70s, right? So okay. you know, guys are still, you know, in their heyday. Uh, of course, 
I was a college dropout who'd worked at the Yale Daily News. I was not on anybody's list of high priority hires. <laughs> so I got a job selling ad space for newspapers. And uh, that worked out really, really well. But the key thing was my father died. He got diagnosed with cancer almost immediately when I got to California and died shortly thereafter. And with him went the family finances. So I was stranded. There was no way to go back to college. I would have, if I wanted to go back, I was going to have to earn the money myself. But fortunately, the job that I'd found was a job where if I worked hard enough, I could earn way more than I needed to live. And in those <laughs> days, going to Yale was not that expensive. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to uh, earn enough to go back and pay for the year. And I, I was able to graduate early over six years. So I, I, I mm -hmm. went back for three semesters. I went back in early 79. The Christmas right before that, my brother gave me a Texas Instruments speak mm -hmm. spell, which is this toy for teaching kids how it's how to spell words and it would say the word and there was a little keyboard and the kid typed in the spelling of the word and my brother said this thing has a display it has memory it has it can speak to you it runs on batteries if you can make this thing today in a few years you're going to be able to make a device that you can hold in your hand that will hold all your personal information your calendar your address book anything that's important to you. He was basically describing the Palm Pilot, but it was roughly 18 years before the Palm Pilot came to market. Mm. I mean, 1978 is year two of the Apple II. It's three years before the IBM PC. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the dinosaur age right. of the technology. And he's got this idea. I didn't have the idea, but I looked at that and went, I could do that. Mm -hmm. But I got to become an engineer. So when I went back to Yale, I took a bunch of engineering classes because I was determined to design this thing. I was going to design this giant breadboard to make the functionality work at really large scale and then later figure out how to make it into a device. I was a terrible engineer. I never really had enough math. And I don't think like an engineer. Interesting, I relate really well to engineers. But there are aspects of what you need to be good at for engineering that for whatever reason, I was not going to be able to get good enough at to make a difference. And what that put in my mind was this notion of there's something really interesting going on with technology. That people are, you know, thanks to Steve Jobs in particular, people are going to use technology to make the lives of others better. It's going to be an empowering force in society. And that was really appealing to me. And so my thought was, well, if I can't design this thing, maybe I can find a way to be there when it happens and find some other role. And so that, that experience with you was almost serendipitous and it was not necessarily part of your formal I, education. But nothing in my life was planned. OK, I, serendipity is, for me at least, the most important force. In, I mean, almost nothing in my professional career happened according to a plan. Almost everything was the result of a blind chance. Is and it possible that there is a plan there that you're not aware of? If, if there is a plan, I definitely am not aware of it. But let me give you a couple of for instances, OK? so. When I go back to Yale and I realize I'm not going to be an engineer, I can't figure out how I can get a job that gets me close to what's going to happen there. So I go to graduate school and get an MBA straight from Yale. I get there and I learn, oh my gosh, the investment business, like mutual funds pay people to do investment research. That seems like a, you know, like a very academic thing. I think I could do that. I think I could be a researcher. And I mean, I really didn't know anything about investing. My father had been a broker, but he, you know, he died a number of years earlier and I'd never been close enough to it to really understand what the ins and outs of it were. But while I was in graduate school, it was totally organic to figure that out. And I realized, wow, they pay people to do this. And keep in mind, 
Wall Street in those days was a completely different animal. Research analysts never got rich. It was mm -hmm. a job. It was a profession. Mm -hmm. It was something you could be proud of, like being mm -hmm. a journalist, right? You know, or like being a professor. You could be proud of it, but it was, and it, you could earn a living, but you mm -hmm. weren't going to get anything more out of that. Right. But that was fine. That's what I wanted. My wife, you know, Anne, mm -hmm. who was yeah. a graduate student at Yale, you know, mm -hmm. when I was finishing my very late undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. she was already a professor at Swarthmore College. And so, you know, I needed to find something that would be geographically proximate. And I couldn't do that either. But a piece of dumb luck happened, which is I cold called a firm in Baltimore, T. Rowe Price Associates. The guy calls me up and I'm literally getting out of the shower. I'm dripping wet. And he goes, you send us a letter. I'd like to talk to you about careers. And I said, I just got out of the shower. Would you mind if I called you back? He said, you know what? I think this is perfect. Let's just talk now. So we have this really <laughs> interesting conversation after which literally nothing happens because they decide I'm too weird for them. Then their entire tech team quits and starts their own firm. And suddenly they've missed the window to hire people, to recruit people on campus. And all they have mm -hmm. is three people who cold called them. Mm -hmm. And they called back all three of us. And in the end, all three of us got jobs. But with none, of us, none of us would have gotten a job through the normal process. Mm -hmm. We were quite unusual. And I then go to Baltimore, and my first day at Zero Price was the first day of the bull market of 1982. Now, for all intents and purposes, we've been in a bull market nonstop ever since. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get assigned, because I want it, to technology which is at that point, essentially a rounding error in the economy and is now the largest single category in the economy mm -hmm. and by far the largest category in the stock market. So there's a lot of blind luck that drove those things, the timing and the assignment and the fact that the job was there at all. I took a ridiculous chance in my interview where I said to the head of the equity business, I really want to work here. I love the people. Two of the first three people I met here were women. They have real positions of responsibility. I'm just really happy to see that. I want to work here, but I'm convinced you're not going to hire me. And I gave him three reasons why I thought they weren't going to hire me. And I said, it just really drives me nuts that you're not going to hire me. And he looks at me and you could see his face is completely astonished. He goes, uh -huh. what is this? What am I dealing with? And No, he goes, first of all, you were right. I wasn't going to hire you for those exact reasons in that sequence. And he goes, but here's the thing. We have to hire people who are really self-aware and are really perceptive. And that, that what you just did was like a magic trick. Uh -huh. So we're going to hire you. I'm making an executive decision right now. Everybody else thinks we're not hiring it, but guess what? You got a job. My point is things like that. What people have to internalize when you're young, is there's a series of things that you can't control. You can't control when you're born. You can't control your parents or your schools or all that. There are a few things you can control, but you have to get lucky on those core things. But before then, we let come back to luck, but tell me those things that you the parents do have some control over. You said that there are some things. Well, no, I'm saying as a as a child, you can't choose your parents. You can't choose where you right. live. Oh, okay. You can't choose those things. But there are things that you can choose. And my simple observation about this is that most young people are not aware of how time works. So they perceive that as long as they don't make a decision, the set of choices available to them doesn't change. And in reality, it's just the opposite that time is always passing and with each day the options available to a person shrink and so if you want to be for example an ice skater if you haven't made it's that shrinking. commitment at age eight and if you aren't already really good at 12 it's mm -hmm. never going to happen mm -hmm. if you want to be a professional musician the ages are slightly older similar core problem early birds do get worms and it was, you know, today you couldn't follow the same strategy I follow because Wall Street is incredibly popular and those jobs have a thousand people every single time. I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate how irrelevant 
Wall Street was in the economy in those days, because it just didn't matter. You made, you made some decisions, for example, that sort of teed you up from what you were, teed you up to what you were able to accomplish. For example, when your brother showed you that machine, you were curious to learn about that machine. When you were taking those electrical engineering courses, you realized maybe the world is broader than this. Maybe I don't want to go into this silo specifically. So this brings me to this brings me to point two. Point one was that people don't recognize how important it is to anticipate and to recognize that options are always going away, right? So that delaying is a bad idea. The second thing is know yourself. My career is entirely a function of the luck of being at T. Rowe Price that allowed me to alter the job of being a research analyst and portfolio manager to suit my natural strengths. Okay. So allowed I did not alter fit the, the job. So you, 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 that is, does, there's something beyond just a pure serendipity that you have the internal capacity well, to this have is the, the, the to first part, the first vision. part is the serendipity. The second part is what you do with it. Right. Okay. 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 Yeah. And so here's how it worked. When I got to Tiro Price in 1982, research analysts did not have personal computers yet, right? They were just beginning to spread. They, they worked in an office. Things came in via the mail, right? Fax machines were still not yet a thing. So stuff came in through the mail and they make these big spreadsheets on paper and they try to do financial forecasting. And I learned how to do all of that. But when I started, when I started, tech wasn't what we think of as tech today. Tech in those days was the space program and military stuff. Personal computers weren't really an industry in 82. By 83, it was becoming one. By 84 and five, it was one. And so suddenly I was able to pivot over that. When I pivoted over to covering just things that were microprocessor based, I had two insights that drove that, that were really valuable. The first was that microprocessors were scalable, that Moore's law, this notion that the processing power would double every 18 months for whatever amount of money you were spending, that that meant that microprocessors would eventually replace everything. Mm -hmm. So I basically decided I would never invest in any old tech companies, only in ones that were microprocessor based. That mm -hmm. turned out to be an unbelievably valuable choice. But mm -hmm. the second one, was that I realized that the personal computer industry was dominated by people who were precisely my age. You know, Malcolm Gladwell points out that almost everybody who created the personal computer industry was born either in 1955 or 1956. Mm -hmm. And so I looked around and I said, what are they doing? And what they were doing was traveling around to a conference or a trade show every two or three weeks. So it was like a, a circus going from town to town. And I decided I was going to infiltrate that. And I persuaded my bosses to let me have what was an insane travel budget. The average person at Tiro Price probably went to two conferences a year. They probably left the office twice a year. I inverted the entire thing because my wife was in Philadelphia and my job was in Baltimore. It didn't matter where I was Monday through Friday. And so I persuaded them to let me have this ridiculous travel budget. And I was going to infiltrate the industry. And I did a series of things like, and I started adopting the technology, you know, by the late eighties, mobile things like pagers were starting to become real. And so I embraced all that stuff and I used it in ways no one else did. And all of a sudden tech companies started to view me as somebody who was a product person because I was the target market. And that was so different from sitting in your office and compiling a spreadsheet. Like I didn't care what the earnings forecast was. All I cared was, was the product going to be successful? Because if it was, whatever estimates Wall Street had would be too low. And if it wasn't successful, they would be too high. All I needed to know was whether the product would be successful. The thing about doing it that way is it takes much less time to figure out if product's gonna be successful than it does to create a massive spreadsheet and do a financial analysis. And so I was able to also pivot the way I covered the industry. Everyone else, you have a semiconductor analyst, a hardware analyst, you know, operating systems analyst, applications, data networking, each one of those things was separate. 
And I sat there and said, no, I'm going to look at PCs as one stack of demand, all the way from the microprocessor and the memory, all the way up to the apps. And I would just look at those guys. And I would look at any industry I could structure that way in a vertical slice where one demand curve drove a whole bunch of companies. Because in the old days, computers were vertically integrated. IBM made all the parts. But in the microprocessor world, companies were horizontally integrated. They made one part for all the devices. That allowed things to move much more rapidly, but it also changed the way you should do the analysis. And of course, nobody was doing it that way. And so I got this massive head start in the late 80s when tech was totally out of favor on Wall Street. And I had a period where things worked out incredibly well because I had these two really simple things that I did differently than everyone else. And, you know, by the early 90s, everybody was doing it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like a decade head start. Yeah. I, I persuaded Morgan Stanley to compile a list of tech headlines for me every single day and fax them over in like 87 or 88. Well, that became a product later on. And there are a whole series of those things that, that you know, if you, get a, if you get a small advantage and you can sustain it, then people start to imitate what you're doing. And then a lot of your ideas become self-fulfilling. Warren Buffett's played that game forever, right? And... Yeah. You know, it's it wasn't even his game to be it wasn't even his game to begin with. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but the PR part of it is his game. Yeah. Oh, the, okay. the, the way he manipulates the press is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's there's one thing that just to comment here on what you said. Um, we uh, even in my own writing, I have a whole chapter on uh, contrarian thinking. Think opposite is the name of the chapter. And you're you're pretty close to that. Thinking in way, and we say the genius is somebody who sees a target nobody else can see, but oftentimes they can see it because they're looking in exactly the opposite direction. Now you've got this analogy well, of vertical versus horizontal. So you're, I you're would, go, you're. But I would argue that, great, Craig, I would argue that it's actually much more about self awareness. That I'm sitting at, well, I'll give you an example. At T. Rowe Price, when people traveled, like to the West Coast, they would always take a red eye back. So like everyone else, the first time I went to the West Coast, I took a red eye back. I was like, my brain was a mess for three days afterwards. Hmm. And I realized I can't do red eyes. Without sleep, yeah. I, I just, they throw me off for too long. In the investment business, you can lose more money with one bad decision than you can make up with 10 good ones. And hmm. so it's really important to know yourself. And so I would focus on that kind of thing. And each time I made an adjustment like that it was reflecting my awareness of trying to convert what was generally perceived as a weakness into a strength. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, so it was less that I was being contrarian than I was being self-aware and in a dynamic world, I was willing to ask the question of, is there a better way? And it didn't mean it had to be a better way for everyone. It just needed to be a better way for me, mm -hmm. right? Because remember, if I'm getting a travel budget that's, say, five or six times the next highest person, I've got to find a way to economize. I obviously don't, I can't have as big a team as the people who have no travel budget. And we managed to cover all of tech with two people. And I think Fidelity probably had 10 doing what we did with two. And they did well, not do better than we did. Eventually, you were smart enough uh, being um, not necessarily the contrarian then, just following your own instincts that happened to be op the opposite of what other people were doing. You decided to avoid red eyes entirely by moving to Silicon Valley. Well, now, so, so that, that, was, that was another weird thing, okay? So you talk about serendipity. Fall of 1990, there was a giant trade show in Las Vegas called Comdex that everybody would go to. And William Randolph Hearst III, Will Hearst, his grandfather is, was the original William Randolph Hearst, Hearst Castle and all that. Will was a partner at the venture capital firm of Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. And I had in 
beginning in 1986, developed a relationship with Kleiner Perkins in order to find companies to invest in T. Rowe Price's late stage venture fund. And I'd done a series of investments with a young partner there by the name of John Doerr, who in those days was well-known in the venture industry, but not well-known yeah. outside. And I'd become close to John. We're similar in age, very similar viewpoints in, in important ways. And so Will's throwing this party at Comtex. And I go there and John Doerr comes up to me and goes, Roger, one of our limited partners thinks that we should create a hybrid fund of public and late stage private and that you should run it. Well, the thing that was really weird about this was I was halfway through writing a business plan to do precisely that, which I was going to give to John Doerr, <laughs> but it was only half written. And I looked at him, I said, when do we start? But hold on here. Wasn't that opportunity knocking? Wasn't that what drew you to California? You saw opportunity. The opportunity to work with venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins. Wasn't that what really drew you to California, that opportunity? But the point I was making was Microsoft had just shipped Windows 3.0. And you could see people stood in line at midnight to buy an operating system. It mm -hmm. wasn't any good. But they stood in line at midnight. I'm going, this is not normal. It, th there's going to be something huge here. Mm -hmm. And I need to be in California when that happens. So I want to work with Kleiner Perkins. And I convinced them that having public market people in there would make them more successful as venture capital investors, which proved to be true. And so we started that fund at the end of 1991. And the timing, once again, was perfect. And um, pure accident. You know, all I was seeing was this thing was coming, but we're up and running and we create this new kind of fund. There'd never been a hybrid fund like that before. Well, that and seems to me what gets into the heads of a lot of these people, whether it's Bezos or whether it's Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs said indecorously, I just got a bug up my rear that all plastic computers or all computers should come in a plastic case. But so it seemed to, uh, the, the tr transformers people seem to become obsessed with them. It could be this. It might be this. It might be yeah. this. I see this. Well, so, so when I'm, at, I'm, I was at Kleiner Perkins starting in 91, right? In 94, Jeff Bezos comes into the office to explain what is about to become Amazon. Mm -hmm. It actually had a different name on its first day. He and was a DS, what is that, DSL or then in 94? What's the hedge fund he was working for? He was a DF, um, um, DF. it was a guy's last name. Um, oh, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah. He was, he was at a big hedge fund and, and, but he started this thing and they, Amazon was not the first name they had. He comes in and pitches this thing. And I, I will tell you, it was really obvious that he was at op operating at a completely different level. I mean, when Mark Andreessen came in, which had been maybe a month earlier than that, um, to pitch Netscape, you know, he had Jim Clark, the founder of Silicon Graphics as his sugar daddy. And Clark was extremely dominant. So it was harder to get a feel for Mark Andreessen. Jeff was just Jeff. Oh my God. I mean, his idea was insane, but you looked at him and you go, hmm. hmm. Hard to imagine what's going to stop this guy. Hmm. He'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. And so he, what he calls it creative discontent. You know, he's just saw that this is an inefficient way driving to this store to buy this and he can't well, find it then driving over the next store and you can't find it. That's um, creative discontent in a way, just as you probably were yeah. discontented when you saw stuff that could be done that wasn't being done. Well, in my case, it started out as just, I needed a career. <laughs> and, then, and then once I get going at it, it was really interesting. And the mm -hmm. people were fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was true right up until the mid 2000s. You know, so, so what happened was I'm, I was at Kleiner Perkins. We get this amazing run. The internet bubble happens. And one day Martha Stewart, the Martha Stewart walks into the Kleiner office and I'm standing there. And I see her at the other end of the hall and I turn to the, which she person was living, going, that looks like Martha Stewart. And they go, that is Martha Stewart. I'm going, 
what is she doing here? Doing here. <laughs> They're going to back her company. I went, really? Home decorating? Yeah. I went, I went into my office. I pulled my partner over. I said, Martha Stewart is here. We got to watch what happens. So Kleiner puts their name on Martha Stewart, takes it public like a couple of months later, huge market buy for a thing that's basically home decorating, how to decorate a pumpkin at Halloween. And I'm sitting there with my partner. I'm going, dude, we are going into a mania. If you can just slap Kleiner Perkins name onto a home decorating company and make it worth billions of dollars, this is good. When this ends, it's going to be a disaster. We're totally screwed because we're long only late stage private and public. You know, we're not a hedge fund. We got the wrong model for when this blows up. This fall, <laughs> this fall of 1997. So I go, to, I go to Morgan Stanley. I go to Kleiner. I go, guys, we're going to have a bear market here. And they look at me and go, nah, never going to happen. I go to Morgan Stanley. I go, dudes, the world's going to come to an end. We need a plan B. And Morgan Stanley gave me a pile of money to create what was called euphemistically NBT Capital, the next big thing. And that from that came Silverlake, which was the first private equity fund in technology. And the idea was really simple, that the way to avoid a bear market was to buy companies that were out of favor and then give them enough money so that they could go from being commodity products to premium products because you allow them to fund multiple development cycles. You basically give them midlife venture capital. And the prototypical investment was Seagate, the disk drive company, because disk drives have much, I would argue they're, they're much more technically sophisticated than a microprocessor. I mean, microprocessors are gee whiz, but from generation to generation, they just get denser. Whereas disk drive, you're combining physical things with digital things. And the physical things are moving a gazillion miles an hour. And the digital things are like a microprocessor, right? So there's a lot going on there. And yet Microsoft and Intel together had managed to commoditize disk drives. And we thought, gosh, if we could take away that volatility, that business could survive a bear market and we could make an investment in it now and it would be worth way more. And we could get our investors out of the bear market. So we get that thing, we get it raised in 1999. So a full year before the market peaked. And it turned out it worked exactly as we hoped it would. Hmm. Um, but again, it was like, I saw my career coming to an end because you know, if, if, if all we'd had was integral going into that bear market, we'd have gotten mm -hmm. crushed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, Silver Lake saved you in a sense. Well, it saved our investors, what it really yep. did. Right. And then, you know, the problem was to do that, I had to partner with some folks that whose skills were complementary to mine, but whose values were not complementary to mine. Mm -hmm. And we very quickly uh, decided that after one fund, we were going to part company. And so that's what mm -hmm. led me to mm -hmm. partnering mm -hmm. with Bono on the start of. of, mm -hmm. of and, and, it, and, and then uh, eventually you deaccessioned even Elevation Partners, right? Uh, and in effect, now you've reached, obviously, economic independence. So the question becomes, how, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is your. So, so let, me, let me talk about why I stopped being a professional investor. So, okay, yeah. uh, so th this is actually really important because self-awareness, you know, you know what motivates you, you know what, who you are. So historically, values have really mattered to me. Most people on Wall Street will sit there and go, look, values are a secondary issue. My job is to convert a pile of money into a lot bigger pile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, and this is very idiosyncratic, I've never been comfortable with that model. It The the value system, whatever I'm doing really matters. And beginning in 2007 with uh, Zynga, I started to see that the culture of Silicon Valley was changing very rapidly. First it was Zynga, then Spotify. And then the one that pushed me over the top was Uber because essentially the business models were predatory. Instead of using technology to empower the people who used it, you were using technology to exploit the weaknesses of others. And what I realized was these things were all going to be enormously successful. And that was what the best and brightest of Silicon Valley were doing. They were doing predatory business models. And when I got to Uber, suddenly 
chief executive officers, founders who were sociopathic, that was viewed as a feature rather than a bug. And I just realized, you know, I can't do this. I cannot in good conscience invest in things whose value systems I do not share. And so I told my partners in 2012, you know, as we were getting to the end of our investment cycle, that I was done. I wasn't going to do anymore. I was not going to be investing in Uber and Airbnb and Mm -hmm. Lyft and, you know, the things that um, were coming along. We work, you know, Clearview AI, you know, all the, the things that are so central to what Silicon Valley does today. And I just made a decision that I would walk away quietly. You know, I helped my partners raise a new fund, but I didn't want to do it anymore. And I so was in a position, as you say, I was in a position where I could afford to do that. Right. Okay. So there, there are a lot of things in play here, and I want to keep, I don't want to lose them. Uh, you mentioned that these companies were predatory. Were the individuals running the companies the predatory ones, or was it the business model that was predatory? I don't really, I mean, oh. I, I both. Oh. Okay. Uh, and we could go to uh, Uber. Uh, well, so Uber is really simple. Uber exploited two populations. One was, you know, the investors, you know, the investors were so greedy, they were willing to overlook some really obvious flaws in the model. Mm-hmm. But the core thing was the exploitation of the drivers. And, you know, I had a conversation with the head of strategy at Uber in, I don't know, 2011 or 12, where I said to him, have you thought about either owning the cars or having the drivers as employees? Because I said, my fear is that if all you are is a reservation system, that's really easily cloned. And you will not be able to sustain something if you treat the drivers badly. And if you don't own the cars, but if you have an asset, then you have a real business. And the guy literally just laughed at me. He said, man, you just don't get it. I went, okay, fine. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't want to pick a fight with him. Yeah. But, well, let's but, but my point here is what, what Uber does to drivers. I mean, I mean, remember, Uber was formed on the premise that the law did not apply to them. Same with Airbnb, right? They just ignore the law. And I'm going, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really sorry. I think it's okay to have a negotiation about changing laws, but the notion that you're going to just ignore the law and then use technology to either cover your tracks or to harm the people who challenge you, mm-hmm. that was for me, a, that, that was multiple bridges too far. So let's move on to the, mul- the, the mother load of all of this, which is Facebook. Uh, obviously, uh, after you, in effect, um, stepped away from practices that you uh, were not morally comfortable with, you went on to write the book, as we have said before, Zucked, um, the, uh, the coming or not coming, because it, <laughs> it could have been called coming, but you knew it was there already, uh, Facebook catastrophe. Um, so let's talk about this just for a moment. Um, you have, have served as a witness in front of uh, parliamentary uh, bodies, such as that in Canada. Parliamentarians from England, from Germany have listened to you. Uh, I could go to the news this week and the U.S. Congress is talking about all the malfeasance of Facebook. Um, do you want to get into that? Are you tired of talking about no, no, this? I, I, so the thing to understand here is that in 2006, I got an email from an executive at Facebook who I had a passing acquaintance with, who said, my boss is facing an existential crisis. Would you be willing to meet with him and help him work through the problem? And I said, I'd be delighted. It was something I did very frequently because it's a great way to get to know founders and executives. Mm -hmm. And Mark Zuckerberg comes to my office that day I mean, they were in a real hurry. And I mean, honestly, he comes to the office, he looks just like Mark Zuckerberg. He's got the sandals, he's got the skinny jeans, the gray t-shirt, the hoodie. There. We meet in a conference room that is laid out like a living room. 
So it's very comfortable. We're on comfy chairs. Our knees are probably a foot apart. And I said, Mark, before you say anything, I have to tell you why I'm taking this meeting. I think that Facebook has broken the code on social. And I think you're going to do something no one else has ever done because you offer people control of privacy and you require authenticated identity. In those days, it was only high school and college students and they needed their school email account to mm -hmm. sign up. And I said, I think with those two things, you're going to be able to grow this thing and be a fantastic business. In my head, it was like 100 million people in English speaking countries. That was my hypothesis. But I said, here's the problem. If it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook. And everyone you know, from your board of directors to your parents, mm -hmm. your take employees, are going to tell you to take the money. And I said, I hope you don't do it because you know, they will screw it up. This vision is yours. And if you want to carry it out, you know, if you want to do this thing with privacy, with the identity, which I think are essential, those are your ideas and you need to carry it out. What ensued was in retrospect, hilarious. At the time it was painful. Mark literally spent nearly five minutes trying to decide if he trusted me going through thinker poses. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I can't say anything because I'm literally in the presence of an Olympic class thought processor. I mean, he's obviously just trying to decide, does he trust me? In the end, he relaxes, he does. And he goes, you're not even going to believe this. And at that point, I would have believed anything. But he said, you're not going to believe this. But that story you just told, that is why I'm here. Yahoo, billion dollars, everybody, blah, blah, blah. So I helped him. You know, he didn't want to sell the company. So I helped him figure mm -hmm. out how not to sell it. The whole meeting lasted less than half an hour. But for the following three years, we met roughly once a week. Uh, and I helped him rebuild his team because the old team all wanted to sell the company. So he needed to upgrade some key positions. And um, the key thing I did there was to bring Sheryl Sandberg into Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, which at the time seemed like a great idea because in those early days, Facebook was... I mean, it was kittens, it was family. It was, it was a beautiful, healthy place. And it was still that way when I stopped advising Mark in 2009, Cheryl was fully on board. And it didn't really change uh, until 2011 when the Facebook, when the Federal Trade Commission consent decree went into effect and Facebook ignored it. That's when they started to veer away from what I could Deal with. I didn't know that at the time that they were ignoring it. And then 2013, they created the business model that we have today that causes all the problems. Now, keep in mind, at this point, I'm paying no attention, right? I mean, you know. And, and you, you've got some skin in the game, right? Financially, I, right? I, I, yes, but most, keep in mind, the vast majority of the investment was from our investors, right? Who were making I their see. own decisions. Okay, and not that person. Made, yeah. They were making their own decisions about what to do with it. But yes, I, I had my piece of it. And then at the beginning of 2016, I retired from the investment business last day of 2015, like three weeks later, my wife and I are on vacation. I'm on Facebook. And all of a sudden I see hate speech on there, mm -hmm. political hate speech targeting Hillary Clinton. And it's spreading like crazy as though somebody was buying ads to promote this hate speech. I'm going, why would somebody do that? And then mm -hmm. a couple months later, there was an incident related to Black Lives Matter. I'm going, wow, people are using the ad tools to gather personal identifying information on anyone who expresses an interest in Black Lives Matter. And they're selling it to police department. That's really evil. And they're using the ad tools to do it. But the thing that pushed me over the edge was Brexit. June of 2016, that's when I realized, oh my God, you can use Facebook's ad tools to undermine an election. And I couldn't, I spent months trying to find other people who were looking at it and I couldn't find anybody. Finally, I persuaded a tech blog to let me write an op-ed and I was writing it in October of 2016 and I sent it to Mark and Cheryl as a courtesy. And it basically said, look, there is something about your culture, mm -hmm. your business model and your algorithms. that's allowing bad people to hurt innocent people with respect to elections or with respect to civil rights. And you do not want to get a reputation for harming democracy or civil rights. You need to do something about this. We spent three months 
or I spent three months trying to persuade them. And, you know, hmm. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but they didn't pay any attention at all. And that's when I decided I'd become an activist. Let, let, let me let me follow up on this because it's very, very interesting. Um, and the two, I guess, points uh, that I could um, pursue the first well I get they're related in a way I sort of got onto this because one of my sons used to be an editor of the Harvard Crimson back in the day when Zuckerberg was a studio a student there so I would I went, have gone back in and read the early articles of what was said about him what he was doing at Harvard um, and one has a sense you know it really hasn't changed very much uh, you are what you are zebra doesn't change change this the stripes um, but the other uh, where I'm going with this is a broader question. Um, presumably, what has happened with democratic elections around the world um, and being undermined by this capa capacity for um, uh, audience manipulation is not healthy. So what's the one sort of education or course uh, educational experience uh, in a university that we're missing here that might have helped uh, Mr. Uh, anybody to avoid um, uh, putting themselves in moral positions that they ultimately, uh, upon so, reflection, would wish they hadn't gotten themselves into. So I want to put a point to the question about Mark. He was incredibly young when I met him. He was 22. Only a few years earlier than that, someone that age wouldn't have a prayer of leading a company, mm -hmm. right? That things had changed in Silicon Valley that made the risk of backing young entrepreneurs much lower. And so he, he got a chance. My assumption that was when he got married and had children, he would mature. And part mm -hmm. of bringing Cheryl in was my notion that she would help him mature. What I did not appreciate, and this was an error of analysis on my part, was that their weaknesses would actually interplay much more uh, than their, their strengths. And so that rather than moderating each other, they mm -hmm. actually amplified each other, which was <laughs> It sounds like Facebook. So, so to your question about what you could teach differently, here's what the problem is. When Facebook and Google before it came along, the U.S. was already 20 years into a radical experiment, economic experiment. Prior to 1981, the United States had operated since the founding of the republic on a few basic notions, one of which was that democracy and self-determination were the core values of our country, and that entrepreneurship small businesses were an inherently good thing. You know, the Boston Tea Party was a rebellion against monopoly. And we viewed monopoly as authoritarian and inherently aligned with monarchy. And that's what the American Revolution was about. And we maintained that point of view until 1981. The radical experiment had three elements. One was this notion that there was nothing wrong with being a monopoly, so long as prices didn't go that the market was always the best way to allocate resources and that executives had only one duty and that was to maximize shareholder value. Each of these things was 180 degrees different from the philosophy that prevailed before 1981. And the experiment produced a tremendous amount of wealth in a big hurry, but it was very skewed. All the wealth was concentrated in the hands of a tiny percentage of the population. And the vast majority of the population did not participate other than through employment. And so by the time Facebook and Google come along, this is deeply entrenched. So the notion that all the only thing that matters is maximizing shareholder value and the market is always going to make the right decision. Those two things are actually so obviously flawed it's, it's a wonder to me politically that anyone was able to convince the country that it was okay. All you have to do is look at COVID to appreciate how bad the market is at responding to extreme change, right? The market is not even remotely adaptable in the short run because optimizing everything for shareholder value in particular means that you're, you're maximizing everything for uh, predictable conditions. But when the predictable condition gets broken, you know, the thing that maximizes shareholder value is to have long supply chains. And in a pandemic, those get disrupted. And 
you get the situation of in a pandemic, you need the healthcare industry to take a leadership position and um, contribute to society. Instead, they all were war profiteers, right? And so, you know, you didn't see hospitals adjusting so they could make rooms available where family members could visit patients who had COVID. You know, we've never done anything to get testing up. We've never done a good job of producing enough PPE. We've never done a good job of, of educating the population. And everyone has price couched. And, you know, so you look at this and you go, these are systemic issues. They are not Facebook's fault. And to Mark's credit, he made a point recently that I completely agree with which is, here's the thought experiment. There are five big tech companies in the Fortune 500. Pull them out. Look at the other 495. How many of those executives do you believe are jealous of the success of Mark Zuckerberg? I would guess 495. Now ask, here's the key question. You put any one of those into Mark's seat and you change nothing else. Does anything different happen? No. And the reason it doesn't is because if your job is to maximize shareholder value, that's what Mark's doing. Okay. The, you can't, the, the things we got to fix are, are really deep. This is not an issue of individual responsibility. We've allowed our society to be completely broken. And okay. So let me interrupt you by asking you this question um, in a practical way. So um, let's say you are tomorrow um, appointed president of McNamee University and you want to implement a new course at your university that is going to address this particular problem. In what department would you put that course? Would it be well, philosophy? The, here's the would it be economics? Here, what would you problem. call it? What would the reading be? Here's the problem. When you make students borrow $100,000 to get a college degree, you are locking them into the financial services industry, venture capital industry, big tech, and consulting. Okay, so that's what those we are the admissions. Those are the people. I'm just saying those are the people who are the big beneficiaries of the status quo and mm -hmm. the purveyors of the issues. Okay, mm -hmm. and so I look at this and I just go, again, yeah, you're obviously going to need need blind admission, but it's you're going to have to do it like the Yale School of Music. It's going to have to be for everybody. Everybody gets it for free, right? right. And, and really importantly, you're going to have to encourage people to believe in some vision where there are shared interests. Because mm -hmm. the problem mm -hmm. we have today is the country is all me, 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 me. I don't care about you. And I look at this and I go, I understand how we got here, but this is super unhealthy. And, you know, our parents who had fought the depression and then the second world war, they understood the benefits of collective action. And as a country, we do not understand the benefits of collective action. We haven't understood it on the vaccine. But we haven't before, understood on anything. Roger, just to push this a bit, you mentioned starting off the things that were in the constitution. Uh, uh, and adherence and belief in democracy. I think the second one was individual initiative or independence. No, self, no self-determination. works the right to the make whole idea of, uh, of collectivism. I'm, I'm saying the right to make your own decisions. I'm not talking about, what, what I'm saying is, it's not just collective mm -hmm. action, but mm -hmm. you can't have an education, a public education system without collective action. You can't have transportation without collective action. You can't have an energy grid without collective action. The market will not take care of those things. <laughs> and you need collective action where the market fails. Right. And our problem is we are incapable as a country of not just, look at COVID. We couldn't learn from the experience of the Chinese. We couldn't learn from the experience of the Europeans. We couldn't even learn from the experience of New York City. I mean, well, we did. this is fascinating. Actually, we this is a bigger to, problem that you can teach. Which would your model be than China, um, uh, uh, European Union, or New York City? Which did a better job? I'm saying. Would you say China? I'm, that seems to be the. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. I, I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying. I think the United States was built around a value system of democracy and the right of self-determination. These things are inherently inefficient because they're designed to take into account right. human decision-making. 
The problem with Google and Facebook is that they're optimized around engineering values of efficiency. And their view is that China is an enviable situation because it's terrible. Because it's so efficient. <laughs> but the problem is when you get to nation scales, Google and Facebook are, that focus on efficiency conflicts with democracy and self-determination right. because it perceives those as sources of waste and therefore sources of economic right. opportunity. And so they literally, they eat into democracy and self-determination. And so we are rapidly moving to a situation where people are delegating to computer systems the de decisions that determine who they are. So you ask the question, if, if everything about the story that I've told you is about me making a set of choices, never just with my interests at heart, right? I actually believe in collective action. So it's super important to me not to harm others while Right. Because if, if all I cared about me was I'd have been happy to do, you know, to be the first investor in Zynga and the first investor in Spotify, one of the first in Uber. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, there are lines, there are limits for me right now in the country. We don't have any of those limits. We say if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you're still allowed to make the choices of what Facebook can do, even though you've already shown that you're responsible. But it seems to me that you're, uh, I'm not disagreeing with the thing that you've said here, but you should maybe then take the next step, implicit step forward, say, how are, how can we implement what you are suggesting that we can do? And the my instinct here is it's got to be with young people and it's got to be in an education. But it has to start way before college. Right. Okay. okay. And so what I'm suggesting is the first thing you got to do is you have to stop the source of the problem. Right. Okay. So I've spent the last five years trying to get both law enforcement and Congress to do their jobs because these companies have broken the law mm -hmm. and what they're doing is naturally harmful. So we need laws of safety, right? Something that looks like the Food and Drug Administration to decide which technologies are safe, which ones are not, and what they need to do to make themselves safe. We need to have regulations to protect self-determination. You know, traditionally we call that privacy, but your ability to make your own choices, to be able to, to choose your own path, to enjoy the same benefits I enjoyed. And then lastly, we need to have things to enforce competition so alternatives can happen, right? So we, we need to have regulations, but Congress is broken. So best case, that'll take 10 years. <laughs> so what we need to do is use the fact that they've broken the law, right? In the case of Facebook, you know, they've being investigated by the state of Texas for price fixing with Google. There, um, the whistleblower brought out copious evidence of human trafficking, of aiding and abetting the insurrection. There's an insider trading case that should be brought up to the SEC. I mean, there's lots of things that are actually mm -hmm. criminal behavior. And we need to get these guys to back off and, and, if you do that, if you can buy time, then you can go and make the structural fixes. Mm -hmm. But the problem you have today is that this business model that they're using is being adopted throughout the economy. If mm -hmm. you go in to get a COVID test today, odds are, if you're going into a private place, they're going to ask you for your medical history. They're going to ask you for your prescriptions, not because it's related to the COVID test, but because they can sell the data. Okay. And so, so we're, that whole thing is bad because what you don't realize is that these systems are making choices for you, right? And so much of what's going wrong here is that Facebook and Google and others have 3 billion active users. They've collected all the data from all sources on these people. They, make a, they collect it and then they look for patterns because humans are quite predictable. They then create a model for each person based on the same data to figure out where each person is relative to those predictive behaviors. That allows them to forecast, to predict actions. If they can do that, they can sell that to advertisers. But the real danger and the real power comes from the recommendation engines. And there they use all those same tools to manipulate people's behavior. And most people are not conscious that this is going on. You know, when Amazon recommends something to them, they think, oh, they recommend it because I like that sort of thing. No, they recommend it to you because they want you to like it and they want you to think it was your idea. Mm -hmm. And that's why all these new mothers get pushed by Facebook into anti-vax groups and why anybody 
who expresses a, any interest like in Trump is going to get pushed towards anti-vax and towards white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Because in that model, where they're paid based on how much time you spend on there, the best way to maximize time on site is to trigger fear or outrage. And that's what the business is. And so that, you know, these guys, they're killing democracy and they're killing public health. Mm -hmm. And until we decide that our interests are more important than their interests, this is going to be a hard problem to fix. So what you're saying, it seems to me, is before we can um, figure out a better system of bank security, we've got to stop the bank robberies. Good point. Good analogy. And maybe with that point, we should stop because uh, uh, we're probably over our, our time for a lot of time for this particular segment in our course. Um, my guess is that our um, participants here, our viewers, um, our friends uh, will never have seen an, um, a, an interview quite like this before. Uh, but I knew this was going to be this way because I've known Roger, my friend, for many, many years. So thank you, my oh, friend, Craig, Craig, Craig. for joining with me. Thank you very much. And for anybody who's watching this thing, I am just an example that it is possible to make choices in your life, to have values, and to live by them. I haven't been perfect. I have not been uniformly successful. We haven't really talked about setbacks, but I've had many. And the trick in life is to follow each setback with a win. Right. As long as you don't finish on a setback, everything works out fine. Yeah. And I would just encourage everybody, you know, make your own choices because you're going to have to live with the choices that get made. And if you let an algorithm make them for you, you might not be happy. And that's going to that's going to hurt. Anyway, thanks so much for having yeah. me. And, and once again, um, we're going to end with a big win here. So thank you, Roger. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye.